B. If you've been a Christian for any number of years, you've seen it happen. A man or woman that you have befriended, fellowshiped, and served with in the church suddenly turns up AWOL. At first it occurs to you that you haven't seen them in a while, and then you discover they no longer consider themselves part of the church. You learn that they are living contrary to many of the biblical truths they used to heartily embrace. Perhaps in the end they deny the faith completely, and you're left wondering, how could that have happened? What could cause a person who seems to have such a living faith suddenly, it appears, turn their back on Christ? In the news media, we sometimes hear of a person who appears to their friends and family members to be healthy and happy and contented, and they suddenly turn up dead. In such cases, the authorities often launch an investigation to determine the cause of death. The body is taken to a coroner to perform an autopsy in hopes that they will find some evidence that will reveal why this person died. In our text for this morning, the author of Hebrews lays before us, as it were, a once professing believer, actually a whole generation of once professing believers who suddenly turned up dead toward God. And so this morning we've been given the responsibility of performing an investigation into why. Using the text before us, we need to perform an, an autopsy of a dead heart. An autopsy of a dead heart. It's not going to be a pleasant task. But our hope is that the procedure will not only determine the cause of death in the case of this generation, but will shed light on how we can prevent our own hearts from suffering the same fate. By way of reminder, you'll recall that Hebrews was written to a small church, a small group of Hebrew believers, Jewish believers who were suffering under some level of persecution. They had not shed any blood yet for their faith, we're told later in the book, but the pressure was definitely being implied to induce them to turn back from Christ. The author of Hebrews knew the best thing he could do to help this congregation was to remind these men and women about the glory of Christ. And so he begins in chapter 1, demonstrating that the Lord Jesus is not just a great teacher, he's not just the founder of a world religion, but he is very God of very God. He is greater than the prophets. He is more excellent than angels. He spends almost the entire first chapter attempting to convince us from the word of God that Jesus is more excellent than the angels. More than that, chapter 2 reveals that this Christ, this promised Messiah, whose name was Jesus, did what no angel had the power to do. He became a man. And as a man, he endured everything that you and I have to endure. He entered the world and suffered all things that we suffer, was tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet without sin. 
He endured it all to the point of death on the cross so that we might be saved and he might become a faithful high priest before the Father in heaven on our behalf. More than that, chapter 3 shows that Jesus not only is greater than the angels of God, but he is greater than Moses, who brought salvation to Israel by rescuing them from Egypt. You remember that story. That's significant when we look into the text this morning. And this would have been especially powerful and poignant to these believers who would be reading this text because they were Jewish. There was not a human being that they elevated more than Moses. The point is, of all of this, Jesus is someone worth suffering for. Jesus Christ is someone who is worth dying for. After all that God has provided for us in Christ, it would be an act of treason. Not only treason, but an act of absolute, ultimate foolishness to turn your back on him. Nevertheless, some were being tempted to shrink back and to turn away, to fall away. Those are the terms the author uses again and again throughout the book. Do not shrink back. Do not fall away. Now, before we divide, dive into this text uh, for this morning, I want to give you kind of a jet tour over it so we'll have an idea of where the author wants us to go. And then we'll come back and look at the details. First of all, I want you to look with me at verse 7. That's where we are this week. We left off with verse 6. I'll make mention of that before we're done. But beginning with verse 7 of chapter 3, the author reminds us of Israel's history, how they were the objects of God's special care and privilege and protection. And yet, listen, most of them failed to enter the promised land. Read with me, chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore... Just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where their fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and I said, they always go astray in their hearts and they did not know my ways as I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. They will not enter the promised land. In verse 12, then the author warns these Jewish believers who are reading this to be careful that none of them follow the example of the generation that he's referring to who all fell away from the living God because they had an evil, unbelieving heart. He warns them that unless... This, they take this warning seriously. Some of them will become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And the way to prevent this from occurring, however, is to exhort, to warn, and encourage one another right now, today. The issue is not about starting well. The issue is about finishing well. Read with me, starting with verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called what? Today. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if what? 
if we hold fast the beginning of our insurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Finally, this little church is presented with three penetrating questions designed to reveal how much like the ancient Israelites they were and how close they were to experiencing the same faith as they. And so the author asks these three questions, beginning with verse 16. First question, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Question two, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Question three, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And then finally, a conclusion, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. Now, with the context laid out before us, then, we need to go back and ask, how was it that a whole generation of Israel failed to enter the promised land? Why did that generation die in the desert instead of entering the promised rest? And as we're answering that question, you need to understand, and I will demonstrate this for you from the text, that what the author is saying is, just as Israel, a whole generation of them, failed to enter the promised land, so some of you are in danger of not entering heaven. You understand that? Or the opposite way of saying it is, just as that whole generation died in the desert, so some of you are in danger of dying in hell. I told you it was going to be a hard message. Well, the first thing we need to realize is that the issue at stake here is an issue of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. Sin and righteousness are always a matter of the heart. Four times in this passage, the author points to a failure of the heart as the cause of this generation's premature death. Something went wrong in the heart. The heart died or the heart was dead. In verse 8, he says, do not harden your hearts. Verse 10, they always go astray, where? In their hearts. Verse 12, he speaks speaks of it as an unbelieving heart. And verse 15 repeats, do not harden your hearts. So why did this generation of Israelites die before they entered God's place of rest? Answer, because they experienced Massive heart failure. I want you to think about this. Of the 600,000 men who left Egypt to follow Moses, first to Sinai and then into the promised land. How many did I say? 600,000. Guess how many of that generation entered? Two. Two. Only two entered into their rest. And you remember their names? Joshua and Caleb. 
Talk about small is the gate and narrow is the way, and few there are who find it. Out of 600,000, only two entered their rest that God had promised. Can you feel the gravity of the issue our author is laying before this church? God is telling us in no uncertain terms that there are people, perhaps more than a few, in our church who claim to be God's children but who may never make it to the heaven God has promised because there is something desperately wrong with their hearts. And so what was wrong with their hearts? What was wrong with the heart of that generation who died in the desert having never entered their rest? They missed the promised land because their hearts became hard. And I submit to you that there are three characteristics of this kind of heart, a dead heart. They missed the promised land because their hearts, in the end, were dead. What does it look like to have a dead heart? You may have an image in your mind and think, well, that's easy. Everybody knows what a dead heart looks like. Really? Maybe not. Maybe a dead heart looks like a person who comes to church week after week after week after week. Maybe a person with a dead heart looks like a child who comes to Awana and memorizes scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture. Maybe a person with a dead heart looks like somebody who comes in and writes a check every Sunday and drops it in the offering plate and serves in ministry and even has a history of some fruitfulness. Maybe that person has a dead heart. You remember what Jesus said in that last day when they stand before me. Many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not perform miracles? Did we, do not, did we not do amazing things in your name? And he will say what? Depart from me. I never knew you. So what was wrong? Why were their hearts dead toward God? I'm going to give you three characteristics of a dead heart. We're kind of cutting this heart open and looking at the inside and saying, why is it dead? Why is it not beating for God anymore? And maybe it never did. Number one, it's dead because it's hard. It's a hard heart. It's a hard heart. Look at verse 8. Well, let's do 7 and 8. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. Verse 9, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Now, in order to understand the what he's referring to here, I want you to turn with me all the way back to the original thing that he's talking about. You have to go back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17 is the actual event that he's referring to. You can't necessarily see it in the English, but I'll explain why it's definitely this. As you're turning, let me give you a little history. Most of Exodus up to this point is the story of God sending Moses into Egypt to rescue his people, calling them to let my people go, right? Everybody's familiar with that story. Uh, Disney did a major production on that story. 
And so Moses goes in and he brings the people out. In the process, God sends ten horrific plagues, miracles, against Pharaoh. And the people watch. And the people see how great and huge and omnipotent God is. They follow Moses out. They get to the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They're on their way to Sinai. A couple of things go wrong. It doesn't look too good for them. And they complain. In one particular case, they run out of water. Actually, this is not the first time. This is the second time, and they're not even to Sinai yet. But let me read the text, and it will speak for itself, starting with verse 1, chapter 17 of Exodus. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to, that's, that's not metaphorical, that's a place that they call the wilderness of sin, or seen, if you want to pronounce it differently, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted for water. And they grumbled against Moses. Now look at what they said. And they said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried out to the Lord and said, What shall I do with these people? A little more and they will stone me. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. I take that to mean the pillar of fire would come and stand on the rock at uh Behold, I will stand before you there on a rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? What's the connection here with our text? Our text, if you go back, keep your finger here because we'll be back. Our text says, do not harden your hearts as when, verse 8, they provoked me in the day of trial, mark that word, in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me. The word trial here and the word testing are the Greek equivalent of two words that are in the Hebrew. You know what they are? Meribah and Massa. In the day that you came to the wall, came to the place at Horeb, at Sinai, and you got there and Moses said, Camp here, and you got looking around and there wasn't any water. How did you respond in that day? You rebelled. And so significant was the rebellion that God had Moses name that place Meribah and Massa. What happened here? Well, the people were, were the people were facing a significant trial. They ran out of water. 
there were 600,000 men. That's just men. That's not including women and children. Somewhere between a million and a half and two million people followed Moses out. And they come to Mount Sinai. That's the other word for Horeb. They come to this mountain, two million strong, walking through the desert. When they get there, they look around and suddenly realize there's no water. Is that a trial? You bet it is. Beloved, it's so important that we see this. I said this a few weeks ago, and I'll say it again. J.C. Ryle once wrote, What you are in the day of trial is what you are and nothing more. What you are in the day of trial is what you are and nothing more. It's so easy to say you believe in God. But what is belief? Is it not really trust? Yes, there is an intellectual component, but belief without trust is not belief at all. It is trust. If you say you believe, you are implying that you are trusting God. It's easy to say we believe in Jesus when life is smooth, and there's no pressing reason to trust him. But the moment our professed belief collides with a difficult and perplexing trial, at that moment, our belief will be proven. It will either be proven true as it cries out in humble trust, or it will be proven false by some proud act of rebellion. What happened when the people discovered that they had no water? Did they pray? Did they humble themselves before the Lord? Did they ask the Lord to give them water? Lord, we're following you. We know you're leading in the right direction. We don't see any water. Help us. No, they charged God with neglect. They judged God. Lord, it's not fair. Lord, you don't care. Why now have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children? Lord, are you with us or not? You're being derelict in your duties. Get back to work, God. This is not, nothing short of blatant rebellion. Instead of exercising faith, they succumb to fear. And unbridled feel, fear always has a hardening effect on our hearts. Mark it down. Unbridled fear always has a hardening effect upon our hearts. And the amazing thing is that they had already seen God provide for them miraculously in Egypt. They saw how he sent the, 12, the ten plagues against Pharaoh until he let them go. They saw him part the Red Sea and drown the Egyptian army. In fact, he had already provided water for them miraculously once before back in chapter 15. And in chapter 16, he even sent the manna. And then he sent quail, and everything they needed he provided leading up to this moment. And still, they didn't believe. Still, they would not trust him. In fact, Hebrews 3, verse 9 says, they saw God's works for 40 years and never came to trust him. But you see, miracles can never create faith. You understand that? 
Miracles never create faith. They can strengthen the faith of those who believe, but they cannot change a hardened heart. And just think of the Pharisees. They knew Jesus was performing miracles. They didn't care. The more miracles he performed, the angrier they got. In fact, even when he raised Lazarus from the dead, what was the first thing they said? Kill Lazarus again and kill Jesus too. You would think that they would fall on their face and say, you know, we just can't deny this. You are the Messiah. Miracles never create faith. It's possible to have a heart, a hard heart, but still function in a local church without detection. You can have a hard heart and be functioning in a local church without detection. It's possible. And frankly, that's the author's whole point. But sooner or later, the true condition of your heart will be exposed. Sooner or later, some trial will crash into your life that will prove whether your heart is alive toward God or dead toward God. It may be news that you or a loved one has contracted a life-threatening disease, cancer, or something else. It may be a terrible accident that takes the life of your spouse or family member. It may be the loss of a job. It could even be the reemergence of some previous temptation to which you were at one time enslaved, and you're feeling the pull back into that old lifestyle. For these people that the author of Hebrews was writing to, their temptation was uh, the result of persecution. They were being persecuted. They were being told, if you turn back from Christ, we won't bother you anymore. We'll love you. You'll be a part of our club. Come back to the synagogue. Regardless of what the trial is, however, if your heart is hard, you will respond to that kind of temptation, that kind of trial in the way that this generation in Israel did. You will begin shrinking back you will begin falling away. You may ask, Pastor Dan, are you suggesting that I could lose my salvation? No. What I'm suggesting is what, is that what Jesus said was right in Luke chapter 8, verse 13, that many people have hearts that are like rocky soil, and that when they hear the gospel, they receive the word with much joy, but having no firm root, they believe for a little while, but time of temptation comes, and they what? Fall away. Same word. Time of temptation comes, and they fall away. You see, the temptation doesn't make your heart hard. It only proves that it's hard. You pick up something from the ground or you see something on the ground and you want to know whether it's hard, just take a hammer and whack it. And you'll find out. Grab it and squeeze it. If it's a tomato, guess what? You've got a mess. But that's the way it ought to be. If you've got a rock, nothing's going to happen. When temptation comes, it's like hitting your life like a, with a hammer. It's like squeezing you to make you burst if you're hard. There'll be no effect. Temptation, trial will have no effect on you in terms of humbling you before God. It'll only make you harder. You know, if you take a piece of coal and you squeeze it, it becomes a hard piece of coal. You squeeze it some more, it gets harder and harder and harder. You squeeze it for a lot of years and it'll become a stone. You squeeze it for a lot more years and what? 
It becomes a diamond, the hardest thing on the face of this earth. The pressure will prove you. If you put an egg in the same position, it's not going to take much to break it. And oh, how we need to be broken before God. It's the mark of a true believer. You know what a true believer says when the pressure comes on, when he gets the news? He says what these young people sang. All of your promises are true. I will lift up my eyes unto you. When my faith starts to fail, Lord, your strength will prevail. And all that you've said, you will do. Your promises are true. That's how a believer responds to trial. When you get to the call, how do you respond? How do you respond to trial, beloved? What is your history of response to trial? I know you've had them, and you will have them again. What is your response? I was talking to one of the brothers this week who had a difficult day. I was afraid to call, not knowing what I was going to get on the other end. You know, pastoral ministry, depending on the response, kind of tells me where I need to go in terms of counsel. And so I was ready. And I called this brother. First thing he said to me was, God is so good. He's being good to us now. He's being gracious. He's giving us opportunity to praise Him. And I said, praise God. This is the mark of a true believer. When faced with a severe disappointment, he goes back to God's promises. All of your promises are true, Lord. How do you respond to trial? Do you respond to it in humble faith, pleading for wisdom and help of the Lord who has promised to be your provider? Or do you panic and begin speaking and acting like an unbeliever? Is your response to trial sin? Because if you respond to trial with sin, you're going down a very hard road. The Proverbs 15 says, the way of the unbeliever is hard. Do you panic? Begin speaking like an unbeliever, acting like an unbeliever? Beloved, that's not a disorder. That's not a syndrome. That's just sin. And it may be an indication that though you enjoy sitting in church, your heart is hard toward God. This first generation out of Egypt died in the desert first because they had a hard heart, but there's more. Second, we get looking at this heart further and we realize that it wasn't just hard, it was restless. This was a restless heart. Look at verses 10 and 11. We're back into Hebrews chapter 3 now. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. And they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
Now let's be careful here. Let's understand that on occasion, all of us blow it, right? On occasion, all of us will exercise some form of unbelief. Every time we sin, every time we disobey God, it is unbelief. The real question is, do I live that way habitually? Is that the pattern of my life? Am I constantly responding to trial with sin? Is my life characterized by faithless fear whenever there is a trial? Am I quick to charge God with injustice? Do I find myself frequently responding to trial with sinful words and sinful behavior? Or is it my resolved habit to count it all joy? Not feel it all joy. Count it. It's an act of the will. This is good for me, Lord. This is good for me. I don't know how, but I believe you. This is good for me. Knowing that the testing or proving of your faith produces endurance. And endurance is key here. And I'll tell you why. And we're going to hit this hard in just a minute. But endurance is key because it's not how you start that counts but how you finish. God said this generation always goes astray in their hearts. For 40 years they lived in the very presence of God. They had the tabernacle, the sacrifices. They had the feasts and the Sabbath. They even had the physical manifestation of God's presence in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. Nevertheless, every time they had an opportunity, they gave their hearts to things that God hates. Every time they had opportunity, they gave their hearts away to things that God hates. And that's the way it is for many in the church today. This is the very thing he was warning this little church in the first century about. We are such a privileged people. In our day, we have the completed word of God in a single book. And it's not expensive to get. We have an almost limitless number of resources at our disposal to teach us how to love and serve God. We talk about this frequently. We put on these fantastic conferences. We bring in some of the best speakers in the English language, and we have very little turnout. You know why? We think we know why. It's not because we're in a bad location. I mean, we're almost right downtown. You know why? Because there are so much of that stuff going on here. You can look at your calendar, get on the web, and look at all the stuff that's going on, and pick from any number of good speakers who may be in town on any given weekend, or an excellent concert, or an excellent whatever that's exalting Christ. We are so privileged, far more than these people were. We have the Lord's Supper and baptism to show us visually how great is the Father's love for us, and yet we let our hearts out to things that God hates. How many men among us, young and old alike, frequently and secretly let their hearts out to images on the Internet that are an abomination to the Lord? I know you're here because I know how pervasive this problem is. Or maybe I don't. Could it possibly be worse than I think it is? How many women in our congregation live in a state of discontent, always seeking something more 
than what God has provided in hopes of finding contentment in this life through some means other than what he has given. Of how many of us would the Lord say they always go astray? Not outwardly, not so everybody else in the church can see, but in their hearts. Ezekiel, God told Ezekiel to bring the elders of the church, elders of Israel together. The elders wanted something from God, and so they came to the prophet. The prophet goes to God, and God says, tell these elders that they worship idols in their hearts, and I will not hear them. It was not outward, it was inward. Eventually it manifested itself outwardly as they began putting idols up everywhere, physical idols, and the prophets mocked them for it as they condemned them. They always go astray from me in their hearts. You know, it's possible to come to church week after week, month after month, year after endless year, and never really know the Lord because you have a restless heart. A heart that is never really content in the love of God and being loved by God. He says, therefore... I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their hearts and they did not know my ways. How could you not know his ways? He's with you everywhere you go. Visibly, you can see him. You see, every time you look at, at the tabernacle, there's smoke coming out from, from that, that, end, that end part where the presence of God is. And, and every time Moses comes away, his face glows. I mean, what kind of evidence do you need? Jeremiah was right when he says, the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful, beyond our ability to comprehend. Who can know it? It's interesting, the Lord responds in the next verse. He says, I, the Lord, know the heart. I know how deceitful it is. I know how wicked it is. That's why any righteousness that happens to you or any salvation among you is going to come as a result of a miracle. Because that's the only way it can happen. A sinful heart is a wicked thing. Do you hear the warning here, beloved? Look at the question in verse 16. Who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? I mean, you would think that the most faithful people in history would be the people who followed Moses out of Egypt and saw the power of God with their own eyes. But they didn't. When Moses came, they said, who are you to put yourself over us? By God's power, he showed them. I'm nothing, but God is everything. Trust in the Lord. He brings them out of Egypt. They go down to the Red Sea. And they say, why have you brought us out of Egypt to see us die in the desert? Oh, my goodness, the complaining starting already. And Moses says, just chill, all right? That's in the Hebrew. You just got to read it. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. And he took out his staff and he held it over the Red Sea. And what happened? Wow. Well, that's neat. Not convincing, though. <laughs> he walked through the Red Sea. Oh, no, here comes the army of the Egyptians. Why did you bring us through the Red Sea, Moses? We're all going to die. Good night. Close the sea up. They're all dead. They all sing. Miriam leads them in this 
amazing song that they repeat again and again and again through the generations. The Lord tells them, don't ever forget this song because you're prone to forget what I've done. They go a little way further. They come to a pool of water. They're all thirsty. It's, it's um, poisonous water. It's bitter. Mara, they call it. And they start complaining. Moses, why did you bring us out here so that we will build our graves in the desert? It would be better for us to go back to Egypt. Let's get up our own leaders and let's stone Moses and Joshua. And again and again and again. We can't get through the Red Sea. Oh no, what are we going to do about this army? Oh no, what are we going to do about water? Oh no, what are we going to do about food? Oh, And God says, you want to know what to do about food? Watch this. Manna. Here it comes. Like snow. Maybe not like snow. And they wake up in the morning and there it is. By the way, you know what manna means? Give you an idea of the heart of these people. You know what manna means? Literally, the word manna. It means, what is that? That's what it means. They came out of their house and they went, oh my goodness, what is that? We have to eat that? And then they taste it. And it tasted like honey. And it tasted like a wafer. It tasted like something that come out of heaven. And they called it manna. What is it? And then they said, well, the manna's okay, but we need meat. And God said, you know, I'm really getting sick of this. I'll give you meat. I'll give you meat until you choke on it and die. And he sent the quail. And they came in, and the text says, when the quail finished flopping over on the ground, they were this deep. And the people said, yes, meat, meat, meat. And they began eating it. And, it's, and the text says, even while it was in their mouth and they were chewing it, God struck them. How dare you? How dare you? dare you charge me with wrongdoing? How dare you charge the God of heaven with neglect? Do you hear the warning, beloved? The author of Hebrews is not writing to Israel. He's writing to the church. He's writing to Hebrew believers, maybe in Rome. And he's saying, listen, if it happened to that generation, do not think it can't happen to you. Spiritual privilege is not the same as spiritual life. Do you understand that? Spiritual privilege is not the same as spiritual life. These people came out of Egypt, for goodness sakes, and they were lost. You can have all kinds of spiritual experiences and be lost. And that group of people, and I think it will be a large group, who stands before the Lord on the last day, and they say, Lord, didn't we have all these experiences, and didn't we do all these wonderful things, and weren't we fruitful before you? And he says, nope. Didn't know you. Your hearts were hard. Your hearts were dead. You were all about religion, and yet you knew nothing about me. You knew nothing about me. And that's what he says. They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. How can that possibly be? How can it be that a person who sits in a congregation and hears the Word of God preached week after week after week after week after week, they come to you with a problem and you listen to their problem and you think, oh my goodness, they've been here for years and they've been engaging in blatant rebellion secretly all this time. How can they not know God's ways? Answer, their heart is dead. 
Why did this generation miss their promised rest? Because it had a hard heart. It had a restless heart. Thirdly, it also had a disobedient heart. Look at verses 17 and 18. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were what? Disobedient? You see, beloved, God has set his affection upon this nation called Israel, and he chose them from all the nations of the world. He blessed them with every conceivable blessing. But in the end, only two men of all of that congregation entered the land. Why? Because in the end, they loved their sin more than they loved God. They belonged to the community of God's people, but their lives were characterized by disobedience. They loved their sin more than God. And that's why we say around here, it's great. You say you have a new relationship with God. That's wonderful. Do you have a new relationship with sin? Are you repentant? Do you remember why Joshua and Caleb were allowed to enter the promised land and no one, not even Moses, was allowed? It's because they alone trusted and obeyed the Lord when it came time to take the his promised land for the first time. They got the Canish Barnea, led by Moses. This is before the 40 years in the wilderness. They sent the 12 spies in. 12 spies went to check out the land. They were not sent to decide whether or not they should go. That wasn't the purpose of sending them in. God had already commanded them to take the land. They were sent merely to learn how wonderful the land that God provided was so they could come back and encourage the people before they took it. But ten of the twelve spies let their hearts be ruled by fear rather than faith in God. Ten spies came back and reported that the people are big and our, our God is too small. And two spies came back and reported the people are big, but our God is bigger still. You see, the threat of danger proved the substance of their heart. It tested the substance of their heart. When I was a child, a teenager, someone came to explain all this to me, and they said, if I took this bottle, they kind of shook it. I knew something was in it. They said, if I t- took this bottle and turned it upside down, what will come out? And I thought, what kind of question is that? I don't know what's in the bottle. He said, no, 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 no. Just, just think about it with me. I said, I don't know. Water. He said, well, yeah. Could be something else. Shampoo. Uh, yeah, could be something else. Gatorade. I don't know what's going to come out. He said, whatever's inside. That's what comes out. When your life is turned upside down, guess what will come out? Either faith or unbelief. It has to be that way. You see, the threat of real danger proved the substance of their heart. It proved the substance of their heart. The result was the majority led the people into rebellion, proving that their hearts were hard, restless, and disobedient, which means they were dead. And the author sums all of this up in one word. Look at verse 19. And so we see that they were unable to enter because of, what's the word? Unbelief. Unbelief. You come into my office and you say, I need help. I ask, what's your problem? They say, well, I'm kind of taking some drugs right now and I haven't been to church in a long time. I don't read my Bible. I've cheated on my wife and I don't pay my taxes. Can you help me? And I'll say, are you a Christian? Well, yeah. 
And I'll say, okay, well, let's think through this. You're doing all these things. Every one of them is contrary to the word of God, which means you're saying, I don't believe that the Bible is right when it says I should pay my taxes. I don't believe the Bible. That's unbelief. I don't believe the Bible on that point. And I don't believe the Bible when it says I should be faithful to my wife. You're you're committing unbelief when you are unfaithful to your wife. And uh, taking drugs is bad for you. I mean, the scripture is full of of things that that remind you about slavery to certain things that are going to control you. You are saying, I don't believe that what the Bible says. That's unbelief. And we have a special word for people who live in unbelief. We call them unbeliever. You are an unbeliever. And I give you no hope that you are a child of God. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters how you live, because how you live is an expression of what is in your heart. And the only thing that's coming out of your heart is unbelief. You say, does this really happen today? You bet it does. Are you kidding? It happens all the time. I look back over 13 years of serving in this church, and I see more than a few faces of people who claim to be believers but today are living in blatant sin and rebellion against the living God. They're just gone. Some of them we don't even know where they are. And the amazing thing about this is some of those folks who committed the worst, what you would consider the worst of sins, they could explain theology better than most of us. It is absolutely unbelievable. They knew theology, but they did not know the Lord. Well, this brings us to a final question. Is there anything we can do, can do to address this kind of thing in the church? Yes, there is. Look at verses 12 through 14. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Three things in this portion of the text that we are called to do. Three things that God wants us to do. First, take care. Take care. If Paul were writing this, he would say, be alert. Your enemy is constantly sinking like a roaring lion whom he may devour. Keep on the alert, not only for yourself, but for your brothers and sisters around you. Stay alert. Understand that this happens. And when you see sin Deal with it, gently looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted, but deal with it. See it in your children, deal with it. See it in your husband, your wife, deal with it. See it in somebody you're close to in the body, go after it. Deal with it, gently, in love, for their good, for their joy, and for the glory of God. Don't let them continue. Why? Because sin is deceitful, verse 13 says. The deceitfulness of sin is what hardens the heart. The deceitfulness of sin is what hardens the heart. After a while, they can't hear the Spirit anymore saying, Repent and I will forgive. Repent and I will forgive. Repent and I will forgive. 
Repent and I will forgive. And after a while, you can't even hear it. And after a while, he's not even saying it anymore. And so the first thing you need to do is keep your radar up. Take care. Be on the alert. Secondly, be proactive. Be proactive. Where do I get that? Listen to these words. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so deceitful, we need help seeing it in our lives sometimes. And there are people who commit sin around here, and they kind of get off to the fringes, and you're not sure what's happening. Sometimes the elders know, and you don't. Sometimes the elders don't even know. And they go off here, and you start coming to us. This happens. You start coming to us and saying, hey, where's Brother Bob? We haven't seen him in a little while. Everything okay? Is he still with us? We'll pray for him. There's some things going on in his life. We're not sure everything that they are. But you might want to encourage him. Write him a note. Write him a letter. Get on the phone and call his answering machine. Tell him you love him. Tell him that whatever he's into right now, it's okay. You can come back and talk with us. We want to help you, whatever it is. Let us help. Let us help. Let us help. You got a brother or sister in the Lord who's facing a severe trial? Get beside them. A couple of weeks ago, we watched this movie. Now, I don't recommend movies, but this was one done by a church about a football team facing the Giants. Maybe some of you have seen it. And there's this one scene in there that's so powerful. This boy who's kind of the leader, the biggest, strongest football player, the coach is trying to show him how strong he is and that he can lead this team to victory against the Giants, the name of a, an opposing team. And he gets the kid down on his all fours into what they call the death crawl, where they get another team member and they put him on his back like this, and they put the other guy on the ground on all fours, and he blindfolds him. And he said, what's the blindfold for? He said, well, I want you to go 20 yards, but I want you to give it all your heart, and I don't want you to stop until you're done. Until you've spent everything, don't stop, and I'll be here to encourage you. And so he starts going, and his coach is saying, come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And after a while, he starts slowing down, and the coach gets down on all fours next to him and says, Don't quit! Don't quit! You can do it! Ten more yards! Five more yards! Ten more feet! You're almost there! And when he gets done, the kid finally crashes to the ground, and the coach says, Look up, boy. You're in the end zone. He had crawled a hundred yards. And I look at that and say, This is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying that we should do for one another. Don't quit. Don't turn your back on Christ. I know the temptation is great. I know the trial is severe. But stay true. Stay firm. Don't quit. Keep going. You've got the strength. I'll be here to help. Don't fall back. If we don't do that for one another, I don't know what we'll do. I praise God for some of you who have come to me and my families on so many occasions, it's almost embarrassing, and gotten on the phone and read Scripture. I come into my office, I punch the messages, Scripture. Thought of you today, here's a text that might encourage you. Open the mail, there's a note, praying for you guys. Stay firm in the Lord, all of His promises are true. I need that need that and you need it too 
take care, be proactive, and third, finish well. We become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm unto the end. You see that? Just write in your Bible, this is the definition of a Christian. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You see, the ultimate proof that you are a believer is not that you prayed a prayer and meant it. It's not that you've been baptized. It's not that you've walked an aisle. It's not that you're serving in ministry. It's not that you have a track record of fruitfulness. The ultimate test will be, did he finish well? Did you finish well? And by the way, in case there's any question about that, just look back at verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and boast of our hope firm until the end. You haven't won the race until you've crossed the finish line. Oh, beloved, don't take your salvation for granted. Don't rest your confidence in past spiritual experiences. It is possible to experience great things. Is it possible to experience anything greater than what the first generation of Israel experienced coming out of Egypt? And yet they missed their promised rest because their hearts were dead toward God. And so I ask you, what's the condition of your heart? Are you alive to God? When faced with trial, are your responses controlled by faith or fear? In the deep recesses of your heart, what do you love more, God or the world? In the practical issues of life, are you obedient or disobedient to the word of God as a habit of life? And when you sin, when you fail, when you commit some act of unbelief, are you quick to repent Or are you quick to cover it up like Adam and Eve did? Are there things in your life you know God wants you to do, but you are unwilling to do them? Are there things in your life that you know God wants you to stop doing, and you're unwilling to stop doing them? Take care, beloved. You may have an unbelieving heart that's falling away from the living God. It's not how you started the race that matters. It's how you finished. And so I exhort you, don't allow yourself to become a casualty of a hard and unbelieving heart. I pray you will let the message of this text sink deeply into your soul. And the message is simply this. Many who profess Jesus Christ will miss eternal life. For though they live among God's people, their hearts are dead toward God. May we not miss the message God has for his church.